The uh, theme for the evening talk this evening is Form and the Inconceivable. Shada and I have the uh, privilege uh, as uh, servants of the Dharma of giving uh, teachings in three or four continents, in fact, uh, every year. This uh, enables us to have uh, uh, exposure, of course, to not only a wide variety of people, but also, and equally, to uh, a wide variety of uh, centers. And some centers, uh, IMS <coughs> is one, Guy House uh, is another, where uh, usefully and helpfully, in one particular way, the form of the, the center, that is, the environment I'll, just, I'll wait a minute for Jimmy to come. Stop. Pause. Facilities and uh, resources, there is the value of a situation in which there is, as Shadra and I were talking about earlier today, a certain kind of containment for the form. And this may show itself in the close proximity of buildings uh, and a certain uh, intimacy in a certain kind of way which develops and for some a certain kind of uh, intensity uh, as, as well. And some respond very, very well and helpfully uh, to that. There are uh, situations like that, as we have seen in some of the facilities, where, as with everything in life, it has a limitation too. And therefore, some people enter into those situations of the close proximity, everybody together in the same uh, building, in which a certain intensity can arise. And in that intensity which arises, uh, it generates a certain kind of pressure uh, on, on the mind. And sometimes that manifesting, in terms of the form, in a certain kind of striving uh, which can take place. And not unusual, I was uh, speaking to uh, two or three people both there and I remember in India earlier this year and it's something which each one of us does need to take care and attention to. And that is how in certain situations, in certain environments, meditation environments I'm referring to, this intensity can arise and in the intensity which arises it puts pressure and so one person, as an example, was relating to me his experiences at uh, the monastery of Upandita. Uh, and that's a facility, a centre in Burma, where he, along with others that I know, friends, had spent, I think, one, two or, or three years engaged in very serious, very focused, very concentrated kind of meditation. And uh, in that, a strong emphasis and encouragement on the noting as a means and a vehicle to achieve goals uh, in meditation. For some people it works well, it works healthily and it works beneficially. But sometimes in the pressure which is arising through that kind of intensity it leaves impressions in the very character of the observation, in the very mindfulness itself, in the very noting itself and this person and uh, others I've heard too, who in that uh, intensity, it leaves a residue of impression afterwards. 
this person reported uh, uh, to me that the effect of this was that there was a very strong resistance to meditation, that the person didn't want to sit. And he said that when he sat, he immediately experienced what he called the wall, i.e. the resistance to meditation. And part of it was the view and the belief which he had harbored and carried, and partly in the model that he was given, in fact, was that one works one's way through everything, that one sits through everything, that one doesn't allow anything to get in the way of sustained and constant sitting. The effect of which, of course, can generate more pain, can generate the view, I should sit through everything, And he said even when he was having problems with his kidneys during his period of time in uh, Burma, he was just noting it as just another unpleasant sensation. That kind of intensity is not in accordance with Dharma teachings, obviously, not in accordance with the middle way, uh, uh, obviously. And yet sometimes, because of sometimes these heroic stories which one has uh, read, half of which one can take with a pinch of salt, that it generates the impression or the view inside of oneself, that's how my practice really should be. What happens with that is easily we then identify with a form, we think that's what serious practice is all about, and we may in fact be increasing one of those characteristics that uh, Sally spoke so beautifully about last night, that Instead of decreasing the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the meditation practice, due to the intensity, is actually increasing it. It's making it worse through the pressure which one is exerting upon oneself. And sometimes we get identified in that mode of thinking where we relate intensity to practice, intensity to going deep and how very easily then we identify with this odd sensation of intensity and think that's really what it's about. It's not. It's about wisdom. It's about clarity. So one extreme there is that kind of identification with the form, generating an intensity, and therefore the outcomes of it will be satisfactory, unsatisfactory, sometimes to uh, mind and body. And we can keep justifying it in the name of that's what really serious practice is all, all about. The other polarity which easily and frequently uh, takes place uh, as well is one, and as I say, with facilities, and since life is genuinely environmental, the other aspect and feature which we need to be diligent and vigilant about is in environments and in situations where there is, especially to the eyes, a great deal of space, and Spirit Rock obviously has a great deal of uh, uh, space. On the one hand, it's very relaxing. On the one hand, it's very much uh, a nourishment which can and does come to us through our eyes. But, just as intensity in enclosed environments can generate one state of mind, The other, of course, at the other end of the uh, spectrum there, it can produce and generate a certain lightness, a certain superficiality, a certain shallowness, or whatever, because one becomes identified not with 
the painful zone of practice, but one goes, swings to the other and very much identified with the pleasant aspects of it. And therefore, one will stay, as a result of that, at a kind of light uh, level, pleasantly uh, moving along, and sometimes we're not realizing that we've slipped into that at some expense of diligence and focus, and partly, naturally, the environmental circumstances, lots of space, uh, plenty of sunshine, all of those features easily feed in. Practice is neither intense on one extreme in the way that I just spoke about, nor is it uh, uh, light on the other. And therefore, the environmental, environmental situation means that you and I, in our day, and therefore in our practices, do need to give care and attention to the form. And therefore, a certain kind of quiet focus and quiet diligence taking place in our, in our day, and it's lovely, uh, uh, the, the sittings themselves, it's, uh, day by day are getting much more silent and much more uh, uh, still, and that's a good sign and good signal of the grounding and settling in which is taking place. But also, and equally, as we've pointed out, and Shada and the Sali giving much encouragement for real continuity of, of the day, that in a way, in the diligence of, of the day, there needn't be one wasted step. Not one wasted step in the whole of the day. Because sometimes, when the mind is light, flighty, uh, wandering, or whatever it might be, sure as sure, that interrelationship of mind to body, the body will follow suit. And when the body follows uh, uh, suit, there is a kind of wandering around. The body is at the end of the state of mind. And therefore, when we speak of the continuity of the day and the diligence of the day, we say, right through, beginning through uh, to the end of the day. Sometimes we have to check in with ourselves with regard to this and take a, a second and third look at our day and then ask ourselves in the flow of the day, is that diligence, that mindfulness and that dedication and commitment to it really staying steady? Am I wasting steps? When I was in the forest, uh, in, of Ajahn Puttadasa that uh, Sally uh, referred to uh, yesterday uh, uh, evening. Sometimes, the, and many times, much of the time, uh, I and um, other monks who uh, uh, love the Dharma of meditation, we just sat outside our, our hut, we uh, walked down the three or four steps, there's a hut, wooden huts on stilts, and the walking meditation was literally... Uh, about five meters, we'd sweep the path in the morning, the leaves off the, 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 off the path in the, in the forest, five or ten meters, walk up and down, no clock, no watches, walk up and down, walk up and down, sit, sit as long as we felt to sit, get up, walk up and down, sit, walk up and down, sit, the whole day, except for going on the begging round uh, to the nearby hamlets and villages to the rice paddies. And that was the day, day in, day out, week in, week out, with the uh, regular meetings with the the teacher, or to listen to the talks, etc. And there is a certain kind of quiet diligence which uh, takes place. And some people, in almost confessional terms, tell, tell us, they say, 
Oh, I like to sit, Christopher. I don't think I've ever done a real walking meditation yet. I don't think I've ever done a real standing meditation uh, uh, yet. So the use of the form is such, and the mindfulness which goes along with it has a very important and key feature to it. And some of you have spoken about this today uh, with us and uh, uh, previous days. And that is, there is much more going on which is not accessible to the mindfulness. The real things which are taking place are not in the field of mindfulness. And it's a rather ironic circumstance of uh, human existence that we engage in our life in some kind of belief of, I know what's going on, I am attentive to what's going on, I am in touch with what's going on, and, in Dharma language, my means, my vehicle for that is my mindfulness. When I'm mindful, I'm aware of what's going on. It's true. But what the mindfulness can be aware of is so small, so particular that in fact it's a minor detail of what is really going on. And sometimes we actually experience that, we sense that, we, we feel that. And so in other words, hopefully, diligently, we're going on through the day really making good use of the walking, good use of the standing, good use of the, of the sitting, really bringing all the methods and techniques and everything to bear on the here and now, to get ourselves established. And then, something happens. We had no preparation, no indication, no clue whatsoever, and something is actually going on inside of us, which is distinctive, it's strong, it's very, very uh, noticeable, and may involve the energy, it may involve uh, the feelings and the emotions, and... Uh, it it may, may involve other inner, internal activities which are taking place. Sometimes. In the fullness of that and the intensity of that, we look at that, what's going on for us and we had no preparation. We had no idea that there would be this kind of movement or this kind of outburst or, or uh, revelation or unfolding that's impacting into the present. And sometimes it may be of events, as a number of you reported, of events of something which has occurred. You can come in if you like, rather than hover out there in Siberia. And sometimes one looks and says something from the past has occurred, and in its manifestation, in what is uh, occurring, it just dominates the present moment. Sometimes, in the domination of what's arisen from the past, we can start drawing conclusions about it. One of the conclusions that easily we can draw, and I hope nobody here is doing it, is a conclusion, oh, I've got so much stuff to work out from the past. So we're going through the mindfulness, we're going through the meditations, we're dedicated to our meditations, then something strong arises for us. It's connected with events of old, understandably. But the th to repeat myself, the thought then goes with it. Oh, this which is going on with me really indicates how much stuff I've, is unresolved, how much I've got to, 
to work out. It's a view and opinion. It has no meaning to it. It's an idea out of the experience. It's a conclusion that one is, is drawing. Sometimes, it's, there is something from the past. It was difficult and painful and distressing and it's caused sorrow or grief or, or sadness or whatever. A number of you report this. And sometimes, rather than as it were with us, we want to try to understand all that happened, sometimes, in the present moment, as it is, the wise and skillful response to it is just, as has been said, to feel what we are feeling. And that may be running through, for some people, all of the cells, to actually, actually feel what we are feeling. Sometimes, the trace of what was old, this is common enough, the trace of what was old may be, the effect of it may be fear. Not unusual, in painful past situations, there is fear left, and the fear is, it might repeat itself. This has happened before, it could happen again, and therefore fear is often the outcome. The fear then says, oh, that really confirms how much I've got from the past to attend to. If I may just take my own uh, uh, past in terms of Dharma student to the, to the Ajahn, Ajahn Dhammadara, Ajahn Pritadasa. In the years of being with them, I can't remember any, either of them ever asking me a single question about my past. They just didn't see the relevance. I can't remember asking them what I did, who I was, what my difficult experiences were, what went on with my life, and etc., etc. There was, I'm not saying this is the method, but I'm saying sometimes the past is much less important than the attention that we turn to give it. And so sometimes in the present moment, with the feeling life or energy that's going on, what's important is just to see, is there an outcome? What is the outcome? That outcome may be fear, as an example. And when it's fear, then we have the concern in life, how am I going to take steps? How am I going to take risks to change? to not be identified with the fear. And one of the things that we frequently do is, we say, oh, I have these fears which are stopping me. I have these fears which are holding me back. And what we do is, we create a big gap. This is important here. We create a big gap. And we say, I'd like to get over this fear. And the gap is so big, it ensures we make no changes. I really would like to make this change in my life. And there is a fear about doing it. It could be difficult for oneself. It could be difficult for other people that we, we, we know. And then we say to ourselves, it's such a big change to make in my life, I can't do it. So sometimes the gap that we make between how I am and what I would like to change, is so big, we make it like that to safeguard us from making changes. 
And some of you, you know well, because I've spoken to you, have said to me, and have said therefore a lot more often to yourself, I really want to make a change in my life. I can't do it. I can't do it at this time. I can't do it, etc. So that ensures no change. That ensures the holding to the fear. But maybe, in a gradual way, and in a gradual path or whatever, we can then say, and really ask ourselves, if we've got the focus, if we've got the mindfulness, I can make a change. What would be a change, small as it might be, that is really clear and practical? And sometimes we say, oh, I can't do it now, because I'm on retreat. It's a lie. You're lying to yourself. It's a fiction. You're caught up in the storyline. You're caught up in the content. You're caught up in the belief system. Caught up in the view, I can't do it now. And if one can't make those steps now, the resolution for it, given all the support of the mindfulness and the practice and the energy and the teaching, you ain't got no chance of doing it later on. To make changes in our, li in our life, they have to begin in the moment that one sees the change is necessary. They have to find some form, some manifestation to make that happen in the here and now. Because the further we go from the here and now, sure as night follows day, the resolution gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And your good resolutions today, by um, Sunday afternoon, they're in the dustbin of history. You've forgotten them. Why? Because one didn't find a valid way to find a manifestation in the bridging from fear to fearlessness in the here and now. doesn't take too much thought, too much reflection to implement those awarenesses and therefore not be in the shadow of the fear from the old. And also, it also means we don't have to keep looking to the past. Buddha himself, as my teachers in the same uh, wonderful uh, tradition, says again and again, one who's living with awareness, i.e. get engaged in these practices, does not concern herself or himself with what I was in the past, how I was in the past, what I did in the past, who I was in the past, or whatever. Doesn't concern oneself with it. And therefore, giving, not easy, obviously, giving much more priority in the mode of being to the present. And if, when fear arises, i.e., that which inhibits action, that which inhibits wisdom, that which inhibits clarity, that in that moment, those moments, if we really stop and we are really still, and really doing our sitting, walking practice, the energy will come, and the authority will come with the energy to make the change that needs to be changed. Your thought won't give it to you. You can think your life through about changing fears, and think and think and think and think, but the thinking doesn't have the authority to change. It's too light. It's a lightweight event in the human personality, in the consciousness, in the brain cells. And that's why all the thoughts that we have, most of them are a huge waste of existence. 
So the movement to change, this gaze coming out of here, comes from somewhere else. And therefore, as I said, the mindfulness and all the diligence, not wasting a step, not letting the mind wander, harnesses things together and it gives the energy and it gives the authority to change what needs to be changed, in this case from fear to fearlessness. And sometimes we say, gosh, I really have metaphorically actually to take some steps to show to the being, one's being really, to show one is not held to the past. Sometimes, of course, humanly enough, there's the pressures of the past and the sadnesses of the old and the difficulties that have taken place. And they, other people, of course, easily find themselves and oneself on the end of it. And isn't it so common with us that in matters of the heart, especially as the inquiry and uh, uh, our experience uh, tend to show, sometimes we are terribly hard on ourselves. You know, we say, oh, I'm not a very kind person, or I really have no love for myself or for others, or I'm not very compassionate, or, or whatever. And the view arises either towards ourselves or about ourselves in relationship to others. Another's perception, which is a bit more, has more space to it, doesn't see that at all. Yet we've become so identified with a particular view of ourselves, often in a rather uh, negative and undermining way, that we can't hear the voice of others who disagree and profoundly disagree with the view that we have. We may not be able to hear the view of the other person who knows us and loves us and trusts us and connects with us. We may not be able to uh, hear their voice, but at least but can we just have, no matter how frequent it is, a severe doubt in the voice of the self which comes from itself. Can we have a severe doubt in the voice of the self about itself? It's just an old voice. It's an old echo of times gone by. And sometimes we're connected with our heart. We feel the heart of, the, of our day. We, we feel the warmth of the heart, we feel the love of the day, the love of the moment, etc. And, and we genuinely feel it. And it's there in our heart, in our tears sometimes, or whatever. And that very ex those very experiences of the heart dispute and deny and refute all these judgmental voices, I am not a loving person, I am not a compassionate person, I am not a warm person, I am not this, I am not that. Sometimes in the midst of the heart we're telling ourselves extraordinary thing human beings relating to each other or to oneself. So the form, in the movement of the form and in the steadiness with the form does help to bring and make things stand out more clearly for us. That may include those moments of fear. That may include rather critical judgmental mind uh, towards our, ourself. And we still keep moving via the form, 
keep working with it, with the communication with the teachers, uh, etc. And perhaps through all, all of that, we feel grateful for the past, appreciative for the past, even the pain, the sorrows, the regrets, the sadnesses, the losses, the bereavements, or whatever. Because in some way or other, even with the difficulty of it all, somehow or other, there's a sense that something worthwhile about it, in its in an extraordinary way, helping us to grow. Helping us to develop as a human being. And if our relationship to events of life, and again, reflecting back to Sally last night, in, 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 in the Buddha's incredible encouragement, no, there's no, da- no teaching on this earth which has encouraged so much awareness of change, the awareness of rising and passing, the awareness of continuity to discontinuity, the awareness of birth to death, the awareness of coming and going, the awareness of change, of anicca, anicca, impermanence. And sometimes in those various impermanences of the past, which we would never have wanted, never have sought for, never have invited in any way uh, whatsoever, sometimes the present focus and priorities allow us to see those things help to make us what we are and correspondingly, genuinely, are a resource for helping us to grow as human beings. And, and then we begin to realize in our relationships, as one person was saying with their very close friend who has been bedridden for two, two and, a, two and a half years, one begins to see that actually in relationship and in communication, it is actually a two-way street. We may say, oh, one is helping the other or whatever. But if our understanding is taking place of change and the dynamics of it, actually, everybody is helping each other. Everybody is giving support to each other. All of this is part of the exploration to the genuine and authentic opening up of our, opening up of our life with much less reference to content, much less re- reference to the storyline, and much increasingly more reference to the very barest actuality. So that the storylines that we talk about, the impressions that we refer to of what was, have, of course have some influence, have some relationship to us. But the authentic thing is what we actually experience in the present, in which the storyline is less, the bare experience is primary, and to see in that bare experience, to stay steady with it. And therefore, much of these meditations are a contribution to learning to stay steady with that which is extremely challenging. Every moment you're mindful, every moment you're conscious of your step-by-step activity, every moment you're taking care to your eating, to your listening, or whatever it is through the day, each aspect of, of that is a practice in steadiness. Why? Because the truth is that which is steady. If we are steady in the face of what is, 
that steadiness puts us very close to the truth of things because the truth is undyingly steady. This sometimes in our lightweight walking up and down, in our lightweight sittings, in our lightweight standings, in our light, easy, pleasant days, sometimes we fail to, to sense what that really means in a grounded way. But it will be a tremendous resource, uh, the sense of real presence in the times when we will really need it. And they will come because one cannot organize those times to be present and be uh, clear and say, okay, I'm clear, okay, now the old stuff can come up. There is more significance going on outside the field of mindfulness than what's going on inside of it. And the teachings keep reminding us of this again and again. Sometimes in the, in, in the day, in the matters of being, in the matters of the heart, it's not only finding the clarity and the wisdom of the heart, as the, the Buddha said, here, wisdom of the heart, he said, not only the, the wisdom of the heart in that respect, but also in a kind of transcendental way. And what I uh, mean by that is that even if our heart life is reasonably well integrated with the day, and we're truly committed to an integrated day and not fluffing around with the day or whatever, that sometimes deeper questions can arise and they're not concerned at all, and these are important ones here, either with my past and what happened in it, or with my present and what's happening in it, or my future and what might or will uh, happen in it. So sometimes the movement of questioning that's going on is not related to how my life is, what it's doing, and where it's going. And therefore, again with the characteristic, uh, that third characteristic, it's that non-self interest. Even though much of the day and many of the hours may be human, humanly enough, a concern with the interest of the self, what the self is doing, what my life is all about, what I'm doing with my life, etc. And it's appropriate here. The deeper we go, the characteristic of going deeper is there's less of the self and more of a kind of non-self interest which seems to have a wider sense to it. As though the interest is not only applicable to, as it were, myself, but equally applicable to all selves. Not my storyline and my history, but, but how we all are. Of the many ways that that can manifest, one of the ways, sometimes, for some people, is wondering about that which is what we might call transcendental. So, as an example, we engage in our meditation and working, as I said, and encouraged, as carefully and as diligently as possible. We could draw the conclusion, and it's one of the most common conclusions, the purpose of meditation is to be in the present moment. People will nod, maybe not. Some of you will nod with your head up and down, and 
and some will nod the other direction, and I prefer the other direction. And one says, meditation is to be in the present moment. So the being in the present moment, because you hear it ad nauseum, I know, from us, becomes the goal of the meditation. So at the end of the sitting, or at the end of a walking period, we might turn our attention back over the moment, and we say, oh, but maybe quite accurately, oh, in that last sitting, that last walking, that last standing, or when I had lunch or whatever, yes, I was really was in the present moment. And there is something valuable and important about that. Or we may say, oh God, that was a disaster, that city. My mind was all over the place. And the present moment hardly got uh, a word in, uh, hardly got into my consciousness. And I've eaten this entire meal and I can't remember one single bite, uh, etc. And some of you that might be, in, in fact, right now, listening to this talk. Come to the end, I say, may all, all beings be aware. And, oh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so, sometimes, though we hear with some uh, frequency, of course, about the importance of the present moment, the importance of uh, being connected uh, uh, with it, it would be a pity to make it the end. A pity to label it and describe it as the consummation of what this practice is all about. It would be a terrible pity to speak of what is the beginning step as the final step. That would, that would, that would be an enormous disservice to one. And yet sometimes we get the idea that that's what the practice is all about, being in the present moment as the fulfillment of all human aspiration. It's the beginning step. And then we might say to ourselves, we might ask ourselves, well, what really is the essential function of the meditation? And the mind will, from what it's heard, draw, drag up, draw up, drag up is more precise, some Buddhist words that one has heard uh, in places like this and other places or whatever, and kind of throw that in. And yet it will seem so theoretical and so abstract or whatever. We're making a scrap of difference. So therefore one goes back, oh, meditation is to be in the present moment. So sometimes the inquiry and the questioning, in fact... Not thinking, thinking, a simple question. What is the essential function of meditation? Sitting, walking, standing. So therefore it's not theory, it's in the experience of, may need to be asked just in case one has, is unfortunate enough to have settled for something far less than the best, i.e. being in the present moment. And we have to listen well and deeply and if we listen and not say, as I hear regularly on retreats, oh, I tried that for a sitting about what it means to the being in the present moment or what the purpose is of meditation. And I didn't get any answer, so I just gave it up. No, 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 this would be, a f I said to the person, a five-year question. 
What is the essential core function of meditation? And the answer in all of this is not the one that we've memorized or we've learned. It's the one that actually feels, and the important thing is it feels it makes the difference. It enlivens us in some way. Therefore, we have to be patient with question and response. Sometimes, in all of that, for some, the word God arises. For some, the word God arises. And for some, just hearing the word God can bring out uh, of us a different response altogether. Some, the response will be, you know, if it's, it's an unpleasant response, will be, I can't stand this word. Don't, the only reason I'm interested in the Dharma because there's no expression of G-O-D. Maybe in some of these places. But there is in this hall and it's happening tonight. So sometimes, <laughs> for some, there is a turning, shall we say, a kind of turning back there in which the focus of the meditation is not God, not being in the moment, but for some, the word God or a similar language, whatever, there's a kind of internal feeling or, or response to it. It would be a pity for those whose response to God um, just dismiss it very quickly and say, oh, this is just obviously my judo-Christian upbringing there and it's just one more thing to let go of, uh, etc. Sometimes when the response comes out for some people in this particular way, the very response, in fact, is more important than being in the present moment, let alone not understanding what it means. Not, not being able to make sense of it. But sometimes, as with other things, there once again can be the experience of a gap. Perhaps there is God. Even the Buddha, not very often I might add, what very often means once, in 20 volumes of texts, said, to those engaged in practice, I have found God. Once. Reason for those who know Mother India well, because of all the difficulty, etc., etc., as with Judo-Christian culture, etc., etc. So sometimes there is a response. God. And then the heart, inwardly, for some, and I know it's going on for some of you here today. Sometimes the inner response is, what is my relationship, if any, to God? What, how do, what, what's the feeling which I have arising when I hear the word God? Finding God. Dharma teachings point to this. In the inner movement, sometimes there's a receptivity in that way. Or the receptivity is without the word. Or the receptivity is via another word. 
Sometimes in the receptivity which comes, there is some sense of gap. Gosh, I feel so small. I feel so finite. I feel so limited. I feel so conditioned. Perhaps there is something else greater than myself. I find myself responding to God. What is God? Who is God? Is there God? It's drawing out of me deeper feelings and intimations which I can't quite explain. And I feel, maybe large or maybe small, some kind of gap between myself which is finite and God which is infinite. Between myself which is measurable and God which is immeasurable. Between myself which is subject to arising and passing and to God which neither arises nor passes. And I feel a gap. And then I feel the gap, whoever the I is, and I feel the gap also in other ways. And sometimes the way that we feel the gap in other ways is once again, with hardly noticing it, the intimations of what we have conceived of as God. Mostly due, for most of us probably in this room, to Judeo-Christian religion. And therefore, that gap in our conception of what God is, sometimes makes the gap even bigger. How can this God love this world and permit all of its brutality? All the violence and the obscenity that goes on in this earth. How can this God allow this terrible thing which happened in my life and happens in the lives of, of others? And sometimes we don't realize, we, in that thought or in the feeling life which is going on, the influence of the past tracking and making its way through, as it were, into the present, generating the gap, God and my life, the infinite and the finite, the immeasurable and the measurable. And therefore, some difficulty in our relationship which I'm calling at the moment, God. A relationship to that which is without measure. To a relationship to that which neither comes nor goes. And we may say to ourselves, I don't know if that's true anyway. Maybe life is just birth and death, birth, ageing and death. Maybe life is just the characteristics and that's it. Impermanence and... Um, uh, varying degrees of unsatisfactoriness and, uh, and it's all utterly impersonal, it's not self, it's utterly impersonal and that's it, they're not characteristic of existence, the it is existence. Therefore, we may say at times, I don't know if, that's, if there's anything else but just these characteristics. Or we may say, I'm, maybe there is but I feel the gap. And in the deeper intimations, these kind of concerns and questions don't have, I think you can agree, too much to do with one's personal life. What I did yesterday, what I'm doing tomorrow, what, or the next day. We're actually looking at this existence. At being in this world and for all that it offers us. And so then the teachings and the practices begin to take on another kind of dimension 
And that other kind of dimension is, I'm not too bothered with my personal life, whoever the I is. I'm trying to face up to what it is to live in this world. And, and deal with it and attend to it and, and um, be exposed to all of its incessant contradictions. Trying to make sense of it one day, not being able to make any sense of existence the next day, moving backwards and forwards, up and down, between all this that's going on, going on, going on, going on, right in my face, day in and day out. How am I going to attend to that? How am I going to comprehend all of this? My small mind, my small self, my tiny little existence in all of this. And the Dharma says, actually, we can. Actually, we can. So at the deeper level, sometimes our, this is important here, our way of conceiving is unhelpful. If I have a conceiving of God, it's unhelpful. It makes a gap. If I have a conceiving of the way things are, it's problematic. It makes a gap. It would generate a conflict. It would generate a paradox. It would generate a confusion. And I'll be lost in all my conceivings. I'll feel close to, far from, what I feel I can relate to that, I can't relate to that, backwards and forwards, it requires that backwards and forwards in relationship to what is ultimate in terms of a lot of conceiving. What if I have to then say, my mind is not the instrument for realizing and being with God? What if I say my mind is not the vehicle to actually know what it is to be with the immeasurable? Because my mind knows conceiving. It knows the generating of interpretation. It knows the constructions of perceptions and views. It knows the old way of looking and carrying it into the present. That's what it knows. And since that's what our mind is made up of, that is what the mind is, it seems a hopeless resource to actually know the only thing which is really worth knowing. My everyday constructed mind, in the way that I've spoken to you this evening about, seems a hopeless vehicle. It is. And when the tradition has said in its mystery of its discovery, of teachings of no mind, this is what it's talking about. I see the limitation of the mind to know that which the mind can't get to, can't reach, can't connect with through thinking about or whatever. And then we are left, hopefully, with a certain genuine Humility. I can't go anywhere. I can't get to anything. I can't make anything come to me. I can't organize being with God. I can't do anything. I 
And sometimes that humility, normal, simple, deep and profound, human humility, brings us to a rest. Because my efforts are hopeless. My striving and my willpower is hopeless. My mind has produced it. And even though I might feel and do experience the benefits in ordinary matters of daily life, matters of mindfulness, but when it comes to the ultimate thing of life, then my mind is not the vehicle. And one can have, and it's no problem in the Dharma at all, one can have, even at that edge, still out of the mind, a doubt. I doubt if there's anything called liberation. I doubt if there is God that one can be with day in and day out. I doubt whether these teachings over two and a half thousand years uh, point to the ultimate. The doubt which comes out of the mind or the trust or the confidence which comes out of the mind is just the doubt and the trust and the confidence which comes out of the mind. It won't make any difference. You can doubt, you can doubt. You can have trust, you can have trust. You can have faith, you can have faith. It won't make a scrap of difference. Sometimes we sense that. Sometimes we know it's just mind conceiving in certain ways and it produces faith or it produces doubt. And therefore there's a humility of being, a whole being, a humility of, of being, and in that humility of being, even our mindfulness actually is not what it's about. And therefore something else, something other, is what it's about. And we've got no words for it, and therefore, as the teachings have said and reminded us again and again, that the true nature of things, which we call God this evening, is truly, truly, utterly inconceivable. Therefore, the mind is at rest. Utterly inconceivable. And there's something so powerfully sweet and freeing and liberating about it. If we know that, and we know it on the day, we know it every day, or whatever. And therefore, sometimes, the journey, so to speak, may seem to be, so to speak, a kind of exploration of the self and its place in the world. Part of the teachings acknowledge that. But the deeper questions of life are not concerned with the personal life. The true deep question, like concerned with something other altogether. And as the, one of the poets said, love the questioning. Love the inquiry. Even though our conceptions and our and our confusions, and our difficulties, and our uncertainties, and sometimes it seems to trigger more out of the mind that you and I want to deal with, or want to know about, or whatever. And sometimes we're only too glad to get back to the meditation, get back to the practice, get back to being in the moment, uh, etc., which is a, 
a grounding resource for us. But only a grounding resource for one reason only, that we forget the mind, therefore we forget the personal story. And therefore the, that lovely teaching of not self, not personal story, whatever, it begins to resonate. It's no longer some Buddhist clever abstraction or idea. One's right on the edge with it. One says, the personal, the not, is not self as far as I'm concerned. It's just movement of life. The real thing of life is somewhere else. And then, liberation here and now, living with the inconceivable, inexpressible, and all the wonder and joy that flowers out of it is the daily life. And therefore, we can say, hand on heart, we live with God. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with joy. May all beings live a free life. Let's have a couple of uh, quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.